Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 7 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, I would direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode. I will, however, give you the usual taster. In Spain, we previewed the upcoming Clásico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. That match will take place on Sunday afternoon and Barlow sounded particularly despondent when summarising Barcelona's hopes ahead of that one. In France, we looked at the impressive early season form of Seco Fofana at Lens. Fofana is the de facto captain at the club from the northeast of France. Lens, of course, find themselves in second place in Ligue 1 behind league leaders PSG. In Italy, we looked at the importance of Manuel Locatelli, Victor Osimen, and Rafa Leao to Juventus, Napoli and AC Milan, respectively. We used each of those players to explore more widely the current state of affairs at each of those clubs. And in Germany, we analysed the playing style of the Bundesliga's player of the month for September, Florian Wirtz. Wirtz is quite understandably highly rated and so we looked in detail at how he plays his game. We also looked at some of the key differences between Florian Wirtz's playing style and Kai Havertz's playing style. Havertz is a player with whom Wirtz is quite regularly compared but there are key differences between the two. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in detail. This episode is of course produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. You find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Our content has also been selected by Footylingo for some of their content. Footylingo are essentially football's answer to Duolingo and they provide people who are learning English as a foreign language with the opportunity to do so while listening to or reading their favourite football content. So do check them out at Footylingo on Twitter for more information. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're staying well. Hopefully you're staying safe. Thanks as always for your continued support. Enjoy. Michael Jones is down in London for some work experience. 
So he'll be dialing in briefly to discuss all things Italian football, as he does every fortnight so well. For the rest of the episode, you'll just have to make do with Rudy Barlow and you'll just have to make do with me as your two voices of reason, I suppose we could say. Rudy Barlow has just spent his early Wednesday evening watching a quite brutal Barcelona performance at home to Dynamo Kiev in the Champions League. Rudy Barlow, how are you? Hopefully you're not too despondent following that quite woeful 90 minutes. I mean, the important thing was for Barcelona to get the three points and to sort of keep themselves in the running for qualification from the Champions League group. But my, like, there was no need to sort of completely vacuum the world of joy while you were at it. Like, there, it wasn't entirely necessary for it to be that incredibly boring. I, I've rarely watched a second half that dull, I have to say. <laughs> Fair enough, really. Well, while you were um, watching that second half, I was doing my final research for the podcast and I'm, I'm feeling all the more enlightened for it. Now, the Barcelona game quite clearly wasn't much of a spectacle, but last night, another Spanish team did provide us with a quite brilliant game of football. Yeah, it was definitely the, the game of the night for me, and Atleti fell to a 3-2 home defeat to Liverpool in an absolute corker of a match for me um, in the Champions League. And it's a game which I thought, personally, confounded a lot of expectations. Being stuck in my Spanish uh, football echo chamber, I'm, I'm actually quite intrigued to know what you thought of this game because I think it's not only nice to get fresh eyes off it, but also I think a lot of people sort of talk about the Premier League and the Spanish League and perhaps the Spanish League being in decline. So I'm intrigued to know what you thought, Ali. I thought it was a really enjoyable game of football. It very much felt like a Champions League classic unfolding before our eyes. Thought I sound too histrionic there, but it, it was a very good game of football. I was watching it in the Haymarket pub in Edinburgh, of all places, and it just felt like a really good game of football. I think Atleti will probably feel hard done by, to use a cliche. I think Alisson probably was man of the match. I think when you consider the game as a whole, you probably would say a, a draw would have been a fair result. But this very much felt to me like an Atletico Madrid side still trying to work itself out, still trying to figure itself out. And I know that you recently spoke about the plethora of attacking options at Simeone's disposal. And it does very much feel like he's still trying to figure out that formula that works in Europe because there are formulas, or formulae rather, that will work in the league domestically. And, and, and there are formulae that will work in Europe. And it's quite interesting because it felt like we were seeing something similar last season. It felt like Atletico were in transition. They were moving away from traditionally what we would expect of Simeone's side and it feels again this season that they're they're moving in another direction again obviously you'll watch a lot more of Simeone's Atletico Madrid than I will but from what I do watch it does very much feel like that they're just always striving for that perfect formula and when you have as many players at your disposal there's so many different combinations there it will naturally take time but overall I don't think Atletico Madrid should be too disheartened by the loss if anything they should they should be disappointed that they've not walked away with at least a point and you can point to some of the refereeing decisions and 
we don't really focus on refereeing decisions as a podcast. It's not really what we do, but they did play a, an integral role in the outcome of the game. But I, I think as an outsider, certainly when it comes to Spanish football, Atletico Madrid looked to be in fairly good shape. I, I would probably say that would be my overriding thought last night was that Atletico actually look fine. They look good going forward. The goals were well worked and they asked plenty of questions of a Liverpool defence and they made Virgil van Dijk look a little bit rusty, perhaps even. You can say that's maybe more down to van Dijk than anything else, but I think you have to give credit to the way that Atletico attacked, the way that they set up and the way they really took the game to Liverpool in a way that when they played Chelsea, perhaps in the Champions League last season in the knockout stages, it's obviously different dynamics to the group stages, but they didn't take the game to Chelsea at all in the knockouts, whereas in this game against Liverpool, admittedly in the group stage, I, I felt that they took the games to them more. They looked really exciting, and the atmosphere as well at the Wanda, wow, looked amazing. Yeah, I was incredibly jealous. Um, I had several friends at the Wanda, as well as um, my partner's wee sister, which really rubbed salt into the wounds that she, who not a great football fan, was even at that game, and I was not. However, yeah, I, I think you you really touched on some some great points there and you certainly beat me to the punch with the Chelsea thing. I think I, I talked about confounding expectations and this Atleti team is renowned for being defensive. And like you say, we, we saw an Atleti that looked like they're moving towards something and they do tend to do this at the start of almost every season, it feels, for the last three, four seasons where they will look for a more attacking sort of formula. They will look for a more... Uh, free-flowing kind of game and then eventually revert to their defensive selves when when the going gets tough, which may again still happen this season, but I'm way more convinced by this uh, incarnation of Atleti's attack than I have been for a long time. And it also kind of confounded expectations in terms of what we're used to seeing in La Liga, because in La Liga they've not been particularly free-flowing. And it's interesting that they sort of needed to go to you know, down to kind of really take the handbrakes off and go direct and take the game to Liverpool. I think many English pundits, not to name anyone, but many of them sort of really did Atleti down and sort of even Jurgen Klopp, who was saying that Atleti style is to defend and counter. Well, I actually felt that they created a lot more danger than Liverpool in this match and he should... Yeah, maybe look a little more to his own sort of charges before he starts throwing the mud at Simeone. He does seem to have a little bit of a, a bee in his bonnet about Simeone and Atleti, it has to be said. But that midfield of Coque Lamar and De Paul is fantastic going forward. I think they really have a lot of different attributes and they complement each other really well. The comparison with the Chelsea match where they did try and defend and they did try and go for that classic Atleti sort of stance and maybe didn't even show enough belief in themselves. This time when they did show belief in themselves, take away that first 15 minutes, they, yeah, they really went toe-to-toe with Liverpool and they were defeated, admittedly. But I think all of the errors that occurred that caused that defeat, so Griezmann's red card, and then there was a couple of missed chances. There was also Hermoso's, frankly, mindless penalty to give away. And the first 15 minutes as well, it was poor. But all of those things are things that can be fixed, things that can be taken out of Atleti's game. And so this is maybe 
the first time in quite a while that we've seen a Spanish side really go head to head with a good English side and look like they can really take them on. And I, okay, yeah, Real Madrid beat Liverpool last season, granted, but it was a shadow of the normal Liverpool that we're used to seeing. And certainly they were missing a lot of players. So, yeah, I have to say, I was very impressed with Atleti. I was surprised at how well they did. And this was, yeah, a much better Atleti than we've seen in quite a while, I have to say. At the time of release, El Clasico is just around the corner. And so if you're listening to us after the fact, this could all sound really quite prophetic or conversely, really quite silly. Both sides, of course, picked up important wins against Shakhtar, Donetsk and Valencia in recent days, which perhaps softens the criticism after both suffered concerning defeats before the international break. So how is this edition of El Clasico going to play out, Barlow? And when we were speaking earlier this evening, you seemed to think that there was reason enough for you to be fairly confident about your prognosis for this match. Yeah, and I don't think I've ever been so confident of a result one way or the other of El Clasico in my my living memory. This is... I find it really hard to see Barcelona a way that they can win this match. Real Madrid aren't perfect. They are not a vintage edition of this side, but they're just so much better than Barcelona at the moment. And Barcelona, okay, yeah, they've softened the, the narrative and they've stopped the slide a little bit with two wins against uh, Kiev, as I just watched, and Valencia, but neither of those wins really gave you a sense that they'd fixed any of the issues that were really causing the problems it's hard to see where this defence, and admittedly, they were a bit better defensively today, stops Vinicius and Benzema in full flow because they really are looking pretty pretty liquid together. And the frustration for Barcelona fans has to be that this is a Real Madrid side that you can hurt. I mean, Levante scored three goals against them. Celta Vigo opened them up quite a lot. So if they don't manage to sort of get in behind and cause them problems, then... That, that's an issue. And Real Madrid, I do think they've adjusted a little. I think Ancelotti has slightly come off his idea of the high press and maybe being similar to Bayern or Chelsea or Liverpool, or maybe not so much Chelsea, but a team that can press high, a team that can really sort of manage the game. He's dropped it a little bit deeper with the return of Kroos and, Mod- and sort of that partnership with Modric and Casemiro. You have a lot more control. And you leave Vinicius and Benzema to really go at the other side, and Furlong Mendy. Furlong Mendy, he might not be much going forward, and I'd say that's a good reason for which he's fairly underrated on the international scene. But defensively, there's few better left-backs in the world for me right now. He's just really hard to beat in a one-on-one. He's good in the air. He's strong. He's quick. There's, I think, I think you see there's defenders like Alfonso Davies, who's so quick and so smart and such a monster physically that he can make up for a lot of errors or bail out his teammates. Whereas Furlong Mendy is just defensively so perfect in terms of his positioning. And then, yeah, looking at Barcelona, there's just no evidence to suggest that they can win this game. Big games, Ronald Koeman, name me a win. I, I, there's, okay, a couple games against Sevilla, but, I mean, that's that's hardly sort of really... Uh, ruffling anyone's feathers by beating Sevilla. If there's one sort of 
element that can maybe add a little bit to Barcelona is the fact that Ansu Fati is back. And even if he's still a little rusty, the addition of him with Depay has given them width and depth, which are two concepts which were more or less absent, unknown, foreign to Barcelona for the last few weeks. And so they also have been playing Serginho Dest out wide, which, which is that too. And yeah, I find it hard to see Real Madrid not winning this game. And I actually think it would be a real disappointment if they didn't. Um, and for Ronald Koeman, a big defeat here maybe spells the end. And I have to say, as a Barcelona fan, I would actually, if I if I had a guarantee that Ronald Koeman was going to lose three or four nil, uh, Ronald Koeman was going to be sacked if he lost three or four nil, I would actually take it because I just don't see any progression for this team, and I can't see how it gets any better with him in charge. Yeah, perhaps a a heavy loss would spell the end for Koeman, and you could bring in the recently newly available Steve Bruce to build <laughs> a new project. <laughs> um, I, I jest, of course, I think I think that's probably too ambitious for Barcelona at the moment. You've written about Rio Vallecano manager Andoni Iroa lately, and you're now keen to send him his flowers. What's fueling the love for Iroa, Barlow? Yeah, I, I wrote about him and that was mainly because I thought he was an interesting character and it's obviously easier to write about someone when they're doing pretty well. But since I've written about him, he, he has done very well and I actually want to, yeah, I want to send him flowers. I want to give him his, his dues because they are, for me, the best team in La Liga right now. I, I mean, individually, okay, yeah, they don't quite have the quality of others. They won't, yeah, be able to compete on the highest stage. But as a functioning unit and as a sort of team ethos of playing a certain way and everyone being in tune with that, I don't think there's a better side in La Liga right this second. And they're winning in different ways. They went to went to Bilbao and beat Athletic in a, in a game which they managed it. They were mature. They managed to sort of really grind out a result there and stick in the game when perhaps Athletic would have normally overpowered them. This weekend, they had no Falco. And so you sort of wondered if they might struggle to break down Elche and Elche who would come and sort of sit in, but they absolutely destroyed them. And they did it all through the flanks for the most part. Alvaro Garcia, Garcia even, (laughs) and Fran Garcia down the left-hand side just completely tore them apart. And it was almost kind of Bielsa-like. He was managed by Bielsa, Andoni Raiola, but it was almost Bielsa-like in the sense that None of those players were taking extra touches. If they got it in space, it was two free touches, move the ball. You you keep the opponent on the back foot. And it's something I spoke about on La Liga Lowdown, but there is a temptation when a team is sat in. I think for, for the attacking team to maybe slow it down and prepare their attacks a little bit more, make them a little more meditated. None of that with Rayo. Rayo just went at them and Elche just couldn't live with it. And it was really delightful to see and if, if I'm handing a bouquet to, to Anthony Raiola, then a singular rose goes to Oscar Trejo, who is an Argentine playing in a number 10 role and doing it delightfully. Not particularly quick, not particularly physical, but just great touches. And it, it leaves you really enjoying your football. Poetic, as always, might I say. Well, we are going to turn our attention to French football shortly. We're going to look at Lons, and we're going to look 
at Ren as well. You'll be right back. In France, Lons missed out on a place in the Europa Conference League by a single point last season. That disappointment aside, Franck A's side were a compelling watch on their return to Liga following a five-year hiatus. Facundo Medina, Jonathan Klaus, Sheikh Dekure and Gael Kakuta all played key roles as Lestangeor finished in seventh place. Over the summer, however, the sale of promising defender Loic Badé to Stade René heightened the concerns that the club would perhaps struggle this season to build on their promising start to life in the back in the top flight of French football. And yet, 10 games into the 2021-2022 season, those fears have been allayed quite decidedly and recorded notable wins against the likes of Lille, Monaco and Marseille. The 1997-98 champions of France find themselves in second place behind PSG. What has enabled this early season success at the Stade Polaire de Ali. Yeah, you gave it a really good go there, Paul, with the pronunciations. <laughs> I do I do apologise for the myriad pronunciations that you had to tackle there, but I, I felt like you tackled them admirably. So, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of Francais in there for me. <laughs> ah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. But you did well, Paul, without wanting to sound too patronising you. You did well, so you can give yourself a pat on the back. To answer your question in terms of what has enabled this really impressive start to the season for Lons, I think the answer is simply continuity. Barlow, Lons are playing with the same nominal 3-4-1-2 formation, which we saw frequently last season. And over the summer, as you say, they only really lost like Baddy. As good as Baddy is, he was one player and one player does not a successful team make. For the most part, anyway, there are exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, one good player does not a great team on their own make. Also, Lons kept hold of Cech Dukuri. They kept hold of Facundo Medina, Seco Fofana. And they signed Gael Kakuta permanently following his productive spell on loan from Amiens. They also brought in Kevin Danzo from Augsburg. And they brought in Frankowski from Chicago Fire. Interestingly enough, they also managed to re-sign Arno Calimuendo on loan from PSG, 19-year-old, who scored eight goals in all competitions on loan at Lons last season. So really, they've done well to keep the core of the squad in place, and they've recruited, as I said, quite sensibly. Now, the club's sporting coordinator, Florian Gisolfi, recently appeared on RMC's Laughterfoot show and he came across really well, Barlow. He spoke really well, he expressed himself well and just gave you a really good impression. He spoke about the decision to hire Frank Ayes as first team manager in 2020, which now looks like an inspired decision, but at the time, bearing in mind Ayes' lack of managerial experience, certainly as the head coach as the main man in the dugout, you know, so bearing in mind that lack of experience at the time, that looked like a risk of sorts, perhaps, but it's worked wonderfully, that appointment. So he spoke about that appointment and he spoke about the club's recruitment more generally. And my main takeaway from Gisolfi's radio appearance was that Lons are taking a very sensible and realistic approach to building 
on the success of last season and ensuring that they don't find themselves back in the highly competitive League 2 anytime soon. And we've seen plenty of teams go down to League 2 and struggle to come back up. Toulouse is one example. Neem and Dijon, who were relegated last season into League 2, are both struggling in the second tier this season. So everything that Lons are doing, to me, seems quite sensible in terms of the off-the-park approach. On the park as well, as you quite rightly say, Barlow, they're currently sitting in second place in the table. And what I will say is that based on the underlying numbers, they probably deserve to be there too, Barlow. This isn't some great surprise. This isn't some great deception. Their expected goal difference has them sitting third in the table behind PSG and Nice. And their expected goals and their expected goals allowed are almost perfectly mirrored by their actual goals and their actual goals allowed. So they've got an XG of 16.6 compared to 16 actual goals and their XGA is 10.2 compared to 11 actual goals conceded. So it very much seems like where they are is a true reflection of where they should be. I mentioned continuity is a key factor, but another key factor is the return of fans to the Stade Bolaire de la Lise. That has been massive. I spoke previously about how the fans are so important to the way that Strasbourg play, and Strasbourg really suffered without their fans. I think the fans are so important to the way that Lons play, and obviously Lons did really, really well without their fans last season, but you do wonder if the fans had been there all season, if Lons would have been able to squeeze into a European spot and not fall ever so depressingly short just by one point at the end of the season. They did, of course, play some games behind closed doors this season against Strasbourg and Reims following crowd trouble in their derby win against Lille. And interestingly enough, they, they actually lost against Strasbourg. Just looking at some of the key players, or one key player in particular, Seko Fafana, 26-year-old Seko Fafana, serves as the captain in Yannick Kozak's absence and Fofana has been a real standout in the middle of the park for Lons. Barlow has been so impressive. He brings real energy and drive to a team which I would say, and most people probably say, blends effort with technicality. You get the feeling as well that Fofana could play at a club bigger than Lons. And I say that not to be disrespectful to Lons. I say that to be highly praising of Seko Fofana. But Fofana does seem genuinely content with life in the northeast of France. Just looking at his numbers, 90th percentile for progressive carries, 90th percentile for dribbles completed, third for carries into the final third in Ligue 1 this season, fourth for progressive carries in Ligue 1 this season, seventh for passes in to the penalty area in Ligue 1 this season. And he's also accrued a non-penalty XG figure of 3.3, which is 10th in Ligue 1, and he's backed that up with three actual goals in 10 Ligue 1 appearances. So Fofana is just, you could almost say, the embodiment of Lons as a whole, hardworking, but technically very good as well, and really enjoyable to watch. There's always something to note when you watch this, Lons team. There's always something to note when you watch Seko Fofana, and I think his signing from Udinese last summer potentially could be one of the best signings 
relatively speaking, in, in the top five leagues in Europe in terms of what he brings to that team in terms of the transfer expenditure on him. I genuinely think he, or rather his signing, was was inspired. That said, and I have waxed lyrical on loans so far this season, I do think it will be difficult for them to qualify for Europe, and I don't want to seem pessimistic, but I think I'm, I'm being realistic when I say this. Leon and Glenn, as I'll come on to discuss, are showing good signs after slow starts. Marseille and Monaco should probably be challenging for a place in the top four. And Nice also look like they'll be there or thereabouts come the end of the season. But that said, Lons have shown that they can be up there. They've shown that they can win against those other teams, as you said, picking up wins against Leo, Monaco and Marseille. And they've shown that they have real quality. So I think it will again come down very much to the proverbial wire in terms of whether or not Lons qualify for Europe. But in either case, I, I think Lons are a team who will be here to stay, certainly for the next few seasons, and they'll continue to be a really quite intriguing case study. Yeah, definitely very, very intriguing to see how they progress. And just moving on to... Stade René and Loic Badé, which is which is where Badé went from Lons. The 21-year-old defender was, of course, one of a number of fairly high-profile arrivals at the Roison Park over the summer. As well as Badé, the Bretons also brought in Gaetan Laborde, Kamaldine Suleimana, Baptiste Santamaria, Lovro Majer, Dogan Alemdar, and Berger Melling. After an uninspiring start to their league campaign, Bruno Genesio's side have shown more suspicious signs of life in their last two home games. They eased past Clermont foot with a 6-0 win before registering a 2-0 victory against Maurizio Pochettino's PSG. They also impressed in a 3-0 away win at Metz last weekend. Given that the club spent more than £70 million on players in the transfer window, is there perhaps an argument to be made that these such results should be the norm for Stade René rather than the exception to any rule? Yeah, I think to suggest that winning 6-0 against newly promoted teams and good newly promoted teams at that, or exciting newly promoted teams at that, and to suggest that winning 2-0 against PSG should be the norm is probably stretching it ever so slightly. But I think then should absolutely be aiming for the top four every season. They should be aiming to try and register wins against the likes of PSG. Um, that's not always going to happen, but that should be something that they aspire to. And I genuinely think that anything short of qualifying for Europe is a huge underachievement as far as Len are concerned. Now, you mentioned those recent results and they have been playing with some real swagger in recent weeks. When you look at the goals they scored against Clermont Foot and Mess, it's, it's almost as if they were toying with their opponents. He scored some beautiful goals, Barlow, in those games. And you can perhaps question some of the defending, which was accommodating, to put it politely. But the goals were still marvellous. Camaldine Sulmana's goal against Mess really had the Twitter timeline purring. And understandably so, it was a beautiful, beautiful goal from Camaldine Sulmana, a real favourite of the Scouted Football podcast as well. Now, I will provide context as... You know, I like to do. But Francois Pino has been investing in Rennes for over 20 years following his takeover 
1998 via his investment company, Artemis. His financial backing initially brought stability to a club which had become something of a yo-yo club towards the end of the 20th century. Fast forward two decades or so, Barlow and the arrivals of the now departed president, Olivier Letton, in 2017, and the also now departed manager, Julien Stéphane, in 2018, allowed the club, I think it's fair to say, to step up another level, qualifying for the Champions League for the first time in their history and winning their first silverware in 48 years. Now, Pino, this man who invests so much in Rennes is one of the richest men in France and he has shown a real willingness to invest in the playing staff and the club more widely and in that regard I think the club have taken a really sensible approach there's been a clear desire to put the right people in the right places as we saw with Olivier Letton coming in and as we saw with Julien Stéphane coming in and more recently we've seen Florian Maurice pulling strings as the technical director he's been in place since July 2020 and he was really quite revered as the head of scouting at Lyon and was somewhat marginalised by Janino and Gerard Houllier uh, and that ultimately I think played a key role in his decision to leave for Rennes. I think there was very much a feeling that he would leave Lyon but the suggestion and and the widespread belief was that he would go to the likes of a PSG or a Barca so to lose him to Rennes I think for Rennes, it shows ambition, but for Leon, I think that was quite a difficult one to take. So there is this desire to put the right people in the right places, and there's absolutely an appetite to spend big. They were the biggest spenders in Ligue 1 in 2020-2021 season, and they're the second biggest spenders so far in Ligue 1 this season. And against that backdrop, they've spent about £135 million over the last two seasons, which is huge, particularly against the backdrop of the pandemic and what that's meant financially for clubs. It's a huge amount of money, and that's why I say that anything less than qualifying for Europe is a huge underachievement for Glenn. Against that backdrop and against those expectations, I think the club will probably be more than anything else, relieved by the recent performances and recent results. Some of those summer recruits have really impressed. Gaetan Laborde scored four goals in his last four league games. Kamaldine Suleiman has scored three goals and provided one assist in his last four league games. And at the other end, they've kept three clean sheets. And there is a sign that it is starting to click, Barlow. Um, maybe not perfectly, but it is starting to click slightly for Bruno Genesio and Ren. Jeremy Doku is, of course, still to return. He had such an electric Euros with Belgium. Like Baddy is starting to settle in a little bit more as well. Now, he had a, a quite difficult start, but it was a difficult start generally for the club, and Baddy is still young. But he's going to be eased back in, I think, as well. And as we saw with Baddy at Lons last season, he's an excellent young defender, very capable. Just to look again at Pino's involvement and Pino's impact at then since the late 1990s we've seen investment in players we've seen investment in the stadium and perhaps most importantly we've seen considerable investment in the youth academy speaking of the youth academy Barlow in recent years that youth academy has produced the likes of Eduardo Camavinga, Usman Dembele and Adrian Truffert it 
has produced so many wonderful players, really talented players over the years. And two further academy products are showing promising signs. Leslie Bugachukwu, 17-year-old, and Matthias Tell, 16-year-old. Bugachukwu is a defensive midfielder, and I won't speak to him too much because Joe Donoghue profiled him extensively when I joined Joe for our league and special on the Scouted Football podcast. So do go and check that out if you want to find out more about Ugochukwu. I want to just spotlight Matthias Tell, who looks like he'll be an out-and-out striker, but the feeling is very much that we're still waiting to see what his true position will be. He's still very young, so that's quite natural, I think. He's made four brief appearances for the Rennes first team, becoming their youngest ever player when he came on against Brest in August. And in so doing, he broke the record previously held by Eduardo Camavinga, of all people, by one month and eight days. Teller scored five goals in four appearances for France under-18s and was voted as player of the tournament at September's annual Lafarge Foot Avenir Youth Tournament. Now, Spain's Gavi also played in that tournament and was sent off, and we know what Gavi's doing now, less than or just over a month down the line. So I think that speaks to Tell's ability. Obviously, Gavi's sending off probably precluded him from ever picking up the play of the tournament, but I think that shows just the potential of Tell and his ability even now. Just circling back to the club as a whole, Barlow, and I will wrap up shortly. I spoke about how I get the impression that it is starting to click for them, but it's not clicking perfectly yet. I feel that it probably never will click perfectly for them. Barlow, maybe, again, that's me being pessimistic, or maybe it's me being realistic. But if they can somehow get somewhere close to clicking perfectly, I I think they could perhaps be looking to secure a second UEFA Champions League appearance in three years. They are a team who are well back. They are a team who play, who can play some nice football. And they are a team who try to put the right people in the right places and try to spend money in the right places. There is a blueprint in place. It's not a case of throwing money at players for the sake of throwing money. And I think all of that just about puts Glenn where they need to be if they genuinely want to challenge for a place in the Champions League and do so regularly over the coming years. We're going to wrap up our analysis of French football there. We'll dial in Michael Jones from London and we'll speak to him about the latest goings on in Italy. We'll be right back. Four games in to the season, the Serie A table made for some pretty grim reading for Juventus with two losses and just two points to their name. Meanwhile, the mood was much rosier in Rome for Jose Mourinho's AS Roma, who had won three games out of the first four. However, four games later, the table seemed to have almost totally turned. The Giallo Rossi are now just a point ahead of Juve, who are enjoying a four-game 
winning streak. Quite fittingly, the old lady's most recent Serie A victory came against Roma last weekend. What do you think has been key to these changes in fortune, Michael? It's been really interesting. I think when we looked at both teams a month ago, Roma were absolutely flying and things are looking really good, you know, as people are even sort of thinking that this might be the start of Mourinho's renaissance and naturally the way things go, it's now the very opposite. But I, I actually think one of the most important things that start with Roma is not to be too reactionary when looking at these. I think when you look at the fixtures Roma had at the start of the season, they had Fiorentina, which was a bit of a crazy game, Salernitana and Sassuolo, both of which were adjusting to a new division and new manager, respectively. It was quite a comfortable transitional period for Roma in the Serie A, and it was a nice start for Mourinho. And I think once they started to get more seriously tested, some of the performances haven't actually dropped alarmingly. I think we looked at the Lazio defeat on the last episode and they created a number of chances and were on the losing side. And against Juventus, they were very unfortunate not to score a goal. Now, Juventus had the lead, but Roma did put the ball in the back of the net through Tammy Abraham. But just a second before the ball had landed at his foot, the referee had the whistle in his mouth and had blown for a penalty, which... They subsequently mm-hmm. missed through Jordan Retou mm-hmm. and Juventus ended up holding on to the game when a goal was completely wrongfully disallowed and the referee didn't fail to play the advantage. So I think there's been some narrow margins there and it also shouldn't be forgotten that they've had a few victories there also against the likes of Empoli and Udinese who have both enjoyed stellar starts to the campaign. So it's not all doom and gloom for Roma but maybe a bit of a reality check. I think one of the things that Mourinho really has to figure out and one of the problems that he might have is with Zaniolo and Pellegrini who are two of his most exciting creative talents now having Zaniolo back after he's missed the past two seasons because of cruciate ligament injuries that he suffered on both legs and desperately unlucky but one of the things that Mourinho has to balance now is that he's trying to play for a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 and that normally means playing either Pellegrini or Zaniolo as an eight or a winger when neither of them really seem perfectly fit for that I think his solution at times is to maybe been playing Pellegrini as a 10 and Zaniolo out wide but I think they find themselves occupying the same areas and it's really hindering the creativity for Roma I also think another issue that he's got is also it may be that we we knew that there was always going to be this priority of them trying to pick up as many points as possible and trying to go and win the conference league. Mourinho is desperate to win a trophy, but to what extent that might affect them will also, it also needs to be seen as well. I think their first game against CSK Sofia, which they put out a far too strong a team against weak opposition, admittedly, they then followed that up with a defeat to Hellas Verona. I think in Juventus's case, and I think where the comparisons start to draw with their contrasting fortunes at both the beginning and first four games and the latter four games is how the managers have adapted to the squads and I think what's maybe helped Allegri is that Juventus didn't have such an overhaul this summer Roma were the biggest spenders in Serie A and whilst Juventus did spend quite big it was a there was a real focus on quality and not quantity and that's really starting to show the acquisition of Manuel Locatelli has been key to changing their fortunes around I wrote about an article in on our pure football 
excuse the pronunciation there. One of the things I talked about was Juventus often dropping into this Catanaccio system too much. And I think one of the big reasons for that, and that was before Locatelli really started to come into the team, was because he was that they didn't have the midfielders who were brave enough to either organise that press. And Juventus were often bottom at the, of the pressing figures. And that's something that just with the arrival of Locatelli, it just goes to show what an amazing player he is and what an impact he's had at Juventus so far. I think Locatelli could be transformative in terms of Juventus's, not just their top four hopes, but also their title hopes. And the goal scorer, albeit by a lucky deflection against Roma, the, the header from Bernadeschi went off the head of Moise Kane, who then scored. But he's also settled quite quickly after recovering from a red card in his, on his debut against Napoli. It's been a real um, turnaround for Kane. So, yeah, I, I think there's some, been some really positive signs for Juventus. Roman, not so much in terms of results, but no need to panic yet. But I think what we can really start to see now is that Juventus out of the two teams are really starting to put together a team that I think is going to be capable of a title charge. Elsewhere, Napoli have enjoyed an altogether more consistent start to the new season. They've picked up eight wins from eight Serie A matches, leading the charge for the Scudetto. Despite this, their last two league games have been decided by just a single goal, with those narrow wins preceded by a 3-2 loss to Spartak Moscow in the Europa League. Are these results perhaps a sign that Napoli might be slowing down, Michael? Yeah, potentially. I mean, one, one thing you've got to say about Spalletti's teams is they're quite known to be made uh, as a team that made fast starts. I think he's enjoyed fast starts in previous stints at both Roma and into Milan. But there is altogether a really confident feel around Napoli. And even though the results in the last three weeks, albeit there's still two wins out of the last three games in all competitions, there's still generally a, quite a positive feel. But I, I do think one of the concerns is where the goals are coming from. And it sounds strange to say that because when we spoke about Napoli a few weeks ago, one of the issues was, was that Victor Asimian was not really getting on the goal score sheet. And that's what was really encouraging was that Napoli was scoring a hatful of goals, yet Asimian wasn't really starting to find the net. Now, it's kind of the opposite now where Asimian is starting to find the net and he's starting to play better and starting to become a bit more settled in this Napoli team. Of course, he had quite an unsettling first season. It was only towards the end and then he took a bit of time to get up and running this time around as well. But my concern is from watching the game with Napoli versus Torino, and I also watched the one against Cagliari a few weeks back, is that maybe the, the attacks are starting to become a bit too centred around him. And whilst he has shown in his time in Italy and his time in France, where of course he was fantastic for Lille, that he really does have the attributes to be one of the top strikers in the world, I think in the next year or two, he can really start to break through, if not a little bit longer. One of the issues that I think Napoli do have is that playing with the system that they have is that they are becoming a bit too over-reliant on him going forwards. And I think when you sort of throw into, if you throw into that in terms of Napoli maybe playing a bit too centrally when they're going forwards, if you throw in that they've been playing Matteo Politano on the right, he's lost to cut inside on his left foot. And then you've got Lorenzo Insigne on the left, he likes to cut on his right foot. With the likes of Mario Rui and 
Giovanni De Lorenzo at fullbacks also who both overlap but aren't the most naturally attacking fullbacks. I think it really does start to maybe just restrict Napoli's creativity a bit. And I think one of the saving graces for them in that respect is that in Spalletti they have a manager who is expansive, he is prepared to be expansive. And whilst we're talking about Roma's importance of focusing on the Conference League for this season, which is understandable given their trophy doubt, I'm not quite sure that Napoli are going to hold in the same regard. And it's a bit of a shame for Napoli because they've always, they've never really taken the Europa League when they've been in it too seriously. But they will be playing Legia Warsaw tonight. It'll be interesting to see how they get on there. But I, I, I do think they're the main causes behind Napoli's struggles at the moment. I also think that one of the issues that is going to be needed to be sorted by Spalletti is the creativity from central midfield. The addition of Andre Frank Zambranghisa has been key. His dribbling and taking players out of the game in midfield has been key. But when he's not playing and they've got the likes of Demer or Lobotka playing in midfield, I think they've just struggled to be a bit more expansive and it has just hindered, once again, the sort of creative attacking play. And going forwards, looking at Napoli's fixtures, they've got Roma in the next week, but they've got such a good opportunity. The big match for them really is in November where they play into Milan towards the end of November. And if they can get past Roma, they've got Bologna, Salernitana and Hellas Rona next. And even if it is these narrow margins, I think what... Spalletti's focus has to be on the next few weeks is finding a way of them becoming a bit less reliant on a Simeon and just getting that balance right because that's something they struggled with the start of the season as well and I think if they can start to figure that out while still just scraping through these games and picking up the points then they could already have quite a healthy advantage over Inter Milan who are many people's favourites to be contending with Napoli for the title at this point in the season so far for that crucial match next month. AC Milan are hot on the proverbial heels of Napoli. Against all odds, the 18 times champions of Italy recovered from a two-goal deficit against Hellas Verona last weekend to pull another three points out of the bag. Rafa Leal has been particularly impressive. His introduction to the game in the 36th minute seemed to really inspire the Rosaneri to a fourth consecutive victory. Are AC Milan finally starting to see the value in the £27 million or so they invested in the former wheel player in 2019, Michael? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's quite ironic. I'd say one of the things that's really noticeable about Rafa Leao is that I think he's really benefited from playing with the likes of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and now Olivier Giroud in the past couple of years I think that has taken a lot of focus off of him and maybe allowed him to be more effective from the sidelines from the side of the pitch even but I think it was just so telling his impact against Hellas Verona in the 3-2 win I mean just for a bit of context in this game they went three they were 2-0 down after in the first half and it led to Leao's introduction on the 36th minute and he came on, grabbed an assist, was also the leading player for shots. He had four shots during the game. Um, and he also had the most uh, goal-creating actions with two as well in the game. And it just went to show a bit about what Leal's been doing this season. He's really 
it's really interesting always with young players. There always just seems to be maybe a pre-season where something's changed. And I think one of the things that might have helped him as well is that they was really heavily linked with a departure from uh, the San Siro in the summer. Borussia Dortmund were interested. Everton were interested. Even Wolves were interested. And I don't know if that was because AC Milan were reportedly offering him to other clubs, but maybe it's just giving him the incentive to take this chance at AC Milan a little bit more. And he really has done so. He's scored some absolutely cracking goals in the league, uh, in the Euro, in the Champions League as well. He's also been a constant threat. And it was also nice to see him feature for the national team during the international break. I do think at AC Milan is just something really exciting happening on the whole. And whilst we talk about the benefit of what the older players are having around him, you've got some really, really good young players in and around the squad as well. You know, we've spoken about Sandro Tonali, at length, he's just 21 years old. Daniel Maldini, he's been nominated for the Golden Boy, I think. He's 20 years old. And there's just Ibrahim Diaz, who's been one of the outstanding players for AC Milan also this season. So I think what Stefano Pioli, there was of criticism for the way his AC Milan side fell off last year despite reaching the Champions League. But what he seems to be building at AC Milan seems to be quite special. And I'm really excited to see what he can do with Raphael going forwards. I mean... In terms of targets for the season, his best tally is six in Serie A. He's already halfway to that with three goals. I think a player of his ability and a player of his potential with the impact that he's having, it would be really disappointing if he wasn't to reach double figures for goals, at the very minimum for goals and assists in the league. Thank you, Michael. Insightful as always. Hopefully you're enjoying your trip down to London, your work experience down in London. We'll catch up soon. Until then, thanks, Michael. On to Germany, and this is a section that I've actually been looking forward to for a few days now, ever since Ali mentioned he was going to talk about it. Florian Wirtz was awarded the Bundesliga's Player of the Month Award for September. Operating principally as a 10, the 18-year-old has been an integral part of a Leverkusen side, which, for the most part, has started the season impressively, sitting just three points behind league leaders Bayern Munich. Of course, Fiat's became Leverkusen's youngest ever debutant when he started for Die Werkself in their matchday 26 game at Werder Bremen last season, barely two weeks after celebrating his 17th birthday. The former Köln youth product has since gone on to become the youngest player in Bundesliga history to score 10 league goals. This season alone, he's netted four goals and provided six assists in just seven Bundesliga appearances. So just how good is Florian Wirtz and how good could he become, Ali? I think Wirtz is very good just now, Barlow, and I think he could maybe go on to perhaps become dare we say it, world-class. There are, however, several quantum leaps required to get from very good to world-class, and I appreciate that, I'm aware of that. There has been a lot of noise about Verts recently, and again, I am fully aware that what I have just said and what I am about to say will probably contribute to that noise, uh, but I, I'm, go I'm going to say it anyway. Barlow, you'll probably remember comments made by Arsene Wenger a few years ago about perception and this concept of scanning. Um, some of the best scanners in the game 
in the history of the game would be the likes of Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Xavi. They all perform wonderfully as far as the scanning metric is concerned. And Wenger spoke, it was at a conference in Paris, I think in 2019, and he spoke about this concept of scanning. He spoke about how he feels like he's lost or he lost or he had lost so many potentially great players to not so much mediocrity, but players who could have gone on to become excellent who, who didn't because they were too focused on the ball. They weren't willing to look up. They weren't willing to observe what was going on around them. They weren't willing to fully observe what was going on around them. And he spoke about how, as a player, when you get the ball, you have to analyse, you have to decide, and then you have to execute in that order. did quite a lot of work with Professor Gere Jordi at the Norwegian School of Sports Science. And it's really quite fascinating. Do go and check out some of Professor Jordi's content, some of his material, some of his research. What Wenger deduced from all of this research and from all of his conversations with these really intelligent football psychologists was that you need to, as a player, get as much information as possible before you get the ball. And that's what Wenger called scanning. And as a player, you have to, for 10 seconds before you get the ball, so technically before you're even sure that you're going to get the ball, you have to look around you, you have to observe and you have to form a full or as full a picture as possible of everything that is going on around you in terms of your teammates, in terms of your opposition, in terms of space, in terms of tight areas. You have to form a complete picture of all of that. And what Wenger was saying is that very good players scan six to eight times in the 10 seconds before getting the ball and normal ones will scan three to four times. And it's this concept of scanning and this art, you could maybe even call it, of scanning that really springs to mind when I watch Florian Wurtz Barlow. And I, I appreciate that what I'm saying is people might say it's a hot take. People might say that I'm, I'm getting too far ahead of myself. But when I watch Florian Wurtz, I see a player who scans frequently and perhaps most importantly, as Wenger himself says, is a player who scans effectively. Now, Wenger hasn't commented on Wurtz yet, as far as I'm aware, but Wenger speaks about the importance of scanning frequently and scanning effectively. I think Wurtz does both of those brilliantly. Now, in a recent edition of his excellent German football newsletter, Louis Ambrose dissected all of Florian Wurtz's goals and assists this season. The main takeaway when you read Lewis's excellent research is that Wurtz is a very good scanner and Wurtz is potentially already making an argument for himself to be considered an elite scanner. Obviously not quite a scanner as effective as Xavi in his prime or Gerard in his prime or Lampard in his prime. I'm not suggesting that at all. But the signs are there that, that Wurtz could well be in the near future, in the not-so-near future, an elite scanner. He's a player, Barlow, with this really mesmeric ability to analyse the game around him, to make the right decisions, and to then execute and implement at a high standard. And the fact that he's doing this at such a young age 
suggests that it's been it's been programmed into him to approach the game like that, to play the game like that. I'm going to just throw some buzzwords out there, Barlow, and, and you can say they're just buzzwords, but they're all key buzzwords. Awareness, perception, split-second decision-making, and this is probably the biggest buzzword of them all, but end product. He has all that. I just think that we're seeing the makings of a really quite excellent player, maybe even a world-class player. More generally, Hansi Flick has spoken about Verts. Uh, he's simply an outstanding technician, loves to play, very creative, has a good shot, runs hard and is quick. He's got the whole package. Flick, of course, gave Verts his debut for the national team at the start of September. And Verts has now managed four appearances. He's got four national team appearances to his name. Comparisons have perhaps inevitably been drawn with Kai Havertz. And I think to an extent, those comparisons are fair. The skill sets of both players are fairly similar, but there are some key differences. Uh, Verts is right-footed, Havertz is left-footed, Havertz is quite a tall player, Verts is smaller. He's not very small, but he's smaller. And Verts is more of a midfielder, Havertz is more of a forward. I think in terms of playing style, the, the, the fundamental difference is that Verts, when he runs with the ball, is more direct. He seems just generally as a player more direct, but I think it probably is too early to be trying to draw too many comparisons between the two players. Now, up next for Verts and Leverkusen is the derby against Köln, a derby which is usually quite spicy, but I think there will be extra spice this time around because both teams shipped five goals on their match day seven matches. Leverkusen, of course, losing 5-1 to Bayern Munich and Köln losing 5-0 away to Hoffenheim in a quite strange 90 minutes of football in Sinsheim. So there's that aspect and there's also the aspect that Leverkusen essentially pinched Florian Wurtz from Köln's Youth Academy in January for about £200,000. Now, bearing in mind that Florian Wurtz is now valued at about £60 million according to Transfer Mart, I think people in Köln will probably be feeling slightly aggrieved, to put it lightly, by the whole Wurtz to Leverkusen saga, if we can call it. A saga. Either way, it's going to be a great game and Florian Wurtz is the sort of player who you just have to watch, you just have to appreciate what he's doing. Technically brilliant, scores goals, creates goals and maybe he'll be on his way to becoming a world-class player. But let's not put too much pressure on the 18-year-old's shoulders. Let's normalise player development and appreciate his natural trajectory. That is all from us for this episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Hopefully you've found it insightful and enlightening. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you're staying well. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.